0: If you've been keeping tabs of the natural disasters impacting our country, you may have noticed that wildfires have become more intense, larger, and are occurring more frequently and scorching everything in their path. First Street Foundation, a science and technology nonprofit, has released a new study evaluating the wildfire risk to our nation's critical infrastructure. But just how do you model out something with so many variables that differ from one part of the country to the other? Joining us today is Dr. Ed Kearns, the Chief Data Officer at First Street Foundation, to break down the methodology, findings and impacts of their expansive research study. Uh, Dr. Kearns, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks for having me, Marshall. Uh, yeah, I'm going to call you Ed, but I always like to at least start off by acknowledging uh, credentials. Uh let me just give the the listeners a bit of your background. You have a bachelor of, of science in physics uh, and marine sciences. Well, is, is it physics and marine sciences? Yeah, it's a dual major program at Miami, yeah. At the University of Miami, and that's the only flaw I have with this podcast so far. He's a hurricane, and I'm a Florida State Seminole, but other than that, we're gonna have a, he's flashing the U as we speak. Uh, He has a PhD in physical oceanography from the University of Rhode Island, Graduate School of Oceanography. He's an oceanographer, has been an oceanographer with the Everglades National Park was the Chief Remote Sensing and Applications Division. Uh, The Chief of that division at uh, NCDC when it was called that, it's now NCEI, uh, has been a NOAA Chief Data Officer on the NASA Applied Sciences Advisory Committee and is now the Chief Data Officer at First Street Foundation. So before we get into the FIRE discussion, what drew you into the world of science?
1: yeah i was uh, growing up in south florida i'm a native miamian and i grew up fishing in florida bay and biscayne bay and and really you know just you know became aware of the environment i had physics and it didn't dawn on me you could do physics and the ocean at the same time until i went for a scholarship interview at the university of miami as uh, when, I, when i was uh, in high school yeah and I was like oh okay you can do these things together and that's what got me on that path yeah Yeah, no,
0: that's interesting. I just spent some time down in Miami taking in some of that natural landscape. We came down to the Orange Bowl uh, when the University of Georgia was playing back there, and I guess earlier in the year. And so got a chance to get out and about in some of that landscape so I can see how it would influence uh, anyone that has an interest in science and nature. So the burning question, and I guess there's a pun in there, is how is someone that's an oceanographer, how did you... uh, become involved with an organization that just released such an important uh, report on fires. Make that connection in terms of that. But before you do that, tell us a little bit about First Street Foundation.
1: Yeah, First Street, so we're, we're, we're a nonprofit, as you mentioned, uh, and we're dedicated to the quantification and communication of climate risk and really targeting at the individual level, really trying to make climate change and climate risk a personal issue. And we're not an advocacy group. We're not advocating for any particular policies or actions. We're just advocating for any action, right? We're advocating for the data and make it more consumable. And uh, and the reason I'm at First Street is, is, you know, particularly in the last four years when I was uh, at the Chief Data Officer at NOAA, one of the projects uh, I was involved in was something that was called the NOAA Big Data Project. Uh, it, it continues on now. It's called Open Data Project. Um, And the idea was to get all of NOAA's data holdings, particularly climate information, and push it out on the cloud, have it be freely available uh, for use or for download by anybody that wanted to. And the idea was to help with this burgeoning uh, climate services industry, uh, help them get off the ground and feed them this information so that it could be put to good use. Um, it's easier said than done, yeah, right. so, <laughs> <laughs> and so I decided to take my own advice and practice what I was preaching, and I, I, so I left federal service and came over to the, um, to the private side and the nonprofit side to do exactly that. So we take all the complicated uh, climate science, all the complicated environmental science, and try to boil it down into very usable, simple information. I want to pick up on something you said, because I suspect many of our listeners to
0: weather geeks may not be familiar with the term. You mentioned climate services. Now, I think people are familiar with the Weather Service or the National Weather Service and what all is entailed. Uh, In recent decades, there's been off and on discussion about climate services, perhaps even the need for a national climate service. And I was involved early on in some of that discussion when I served on NOAA's Science Advisory Board or SAB. And it kind of fizzled. There were they people were conflating or confusing climate services with climate change at a time when people were kind of not wanting to talk about climate change in those circles. I think things have come around in that regard. But give the listeners of Weather Geeks sort of a one-on-one of what you mean by climate services.
1: Yeah, and, and the weather, what we call the weather enterprise, is, is a great analog for what's happening with climate services. So somewhere between the, the government services that provide uh, the, the complicated modeling, all the observations, the things that, you know, only government are going to, is gonna be able to do, between those and the consumers of that information, so this is individuals, private businesses, you know, governments, others, uh, there, there needs to be some uh, translational layer in between there, right? And with the weather enterprise, it has grown over the last 40 or 50 years to be a $10 billion a year industry and, and everybody uses it, right? So when, when you pick up your phone, most people don't have the app directly from NOAA, they've got some other kind of app, whether it's from Weather Channel or it's Dark Sky or whatever it might be, right? And that's, that's this transitional layer, translational layer between, between the information and the consumer. And so, climate services is growing in that same space uh, between the climate models, all the, the you know the the petabytes of information that we've collected related to climate. How do you how do you translate that and boil that down to something that's usable by business, usable by governments, usable by individuals? And so, yeah. So I think you know the, we can learn a lot from the weather industry's um, uh, trials and tribulations over the last couple of decades about that relationship between private industry and government and that translational uh, activity.
0: Yeah, we had on a recent episode, I'm talking with Dr. Ed Kearns from uh, First Street Foundation. We had Kevin Petty from uh, from Spire on recently and talking about some of the lessons learned evolution that we've seen in the private sector, uh, federal relationship. And I think it's improved because I remember a time when I was young in this field when it was a bit more contentious, but I think people are playing together nicely now in nonprofits and NGO world as well. Which leads me to First Street Foundation and and this new report or study that you released on wildfire risk to the nation's critical infrastructure. First of all, tell us why you did this study, and then we'll get into some of the results.
1: Yeah, so when uh, First Street's first uh, information product was related to flood, uh, flood risk and how climate change is impacting that flood risk. And so we released that about a year and a half ago uh and since flood is the most prevalent and most expensive risk in the u.s it was a good place to start and we were exploring whether whether this concept would work you know you can't can we take that complicated information and our target was to boil it down to a a property by property basis uh and have a a score assigned to every property and have a loss uh, a loss estimate average annual loss estimate due to that uh hazard uh for every building and uh, we were able to construct that, and we, we put it out there. It's been out for a year and a half, and it's been a very successful product. It, it's really raised awareness for flood. Uh, it's it, it stirred a lot of great conversations about you know, about what FEMA does, and with risk rating 2.0, and what 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 climate hazard is, and what flood hazard is. And for our foundation, having that conversation, making people aware, is really our our, our primary mission, right? And so. So with the success of, of, um, of what we call flood factor, uh, we then said, well, okay, let's, let's, let's go to NCEI uh, and let's look at the Adam Smith's list of uh, billion dollar disasters. Let's work our way down to the list of climate perils. You know, What can we do and what fits with this playbook of making the risk very, very personal? Can we get fire risk in this case? Can we get wildfire risk down to the individual parcel uh, and individual building? and uh there was you know we did a lot of discovery like i said i'm an oceanographer like you said right and uh, i didn't know much about wildfire i knew a lot about like climate is is is, you know changing but i didn't uh, until we started this project didn't fully understand the impacts on on fuels the impacts on wildfire behavior uh that climate change is really uh, really pushing forward and uh we were able to um uh calculate the wildfire risk down to a, a 10 meter horizontal uh, resolution. So that means we can resolve property by property. Uh, and uh, we know where every building is in the U S and we're able to do a vulnerability assessment for every building from public records, from satellite imagery, from aerial imagery. Uh, and so it, we had all the ingredients. And then the question is, can we combine them in such a way to make it a, a useful product? And we believe that we have been able to do so.
0: So you're telling me if, if there's a listener that theoretically could pull up your report or your study, and they could get a pretty good sense, at least based on your, your, your methodology, of the risk of sort of their property to some degree at that scale.
1: That's correct. And, and so go, going to the website, the website is riskfactor.com. Uh, and so we, you know, since we're having multiple, uh, multiple risks now, we started with floodfactor.com. So now we have more than one risk. Well, let's have one, 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 one stop website, riskfactor.com. You can go there, discover your flood risk, your fire risk. And you can go there, you can type in your address. And so it really makes it very personal We're right down to that address and it and then you'll 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 see what the score is you'll get to see what the hazard layer looks like what the exposure to wildfire is over the next 30 years, what that probabilistic layer looks like. Uh, and then you'll also see um, a uh, an average annual loss estimate of so what, what's the potential losses that you, as the owner of that house or an owner of that property uh, could stand to lose.
0: Wow, this is really fascinating. i fascinating mean, fascinated me because we've done some work in this area with my colleague Dr. Benita KC, one of my former PhD students, who's published on climate risk uh, in in the peer-reviewed literature, but nothing at the detail and level that what you're doing. I mean, what are the factors that you use in assessing wildfire risk?
1: For the uh, for the for the property itself, so the hazard reaching the property, the exposure as we call it uh it's uh, a number of things he said wildfire is complicated a lot a lot more complicated than flood a lot more different factors go into it uh but it's primarily it's the weather uh it's the topography this the the slope uh and and it's where the ignitions are are happening uh and then the the fuels across the landscape uh so we you need to bring these things together in order to describe what the wildfire risk is there and because there's so many different permutations of, of these factors um, we ran a Monte Carlo simulation uh, to do this, and to do so, we ran about 100 million uh, different simulations across the continental U.S. in order to describe what that hazard looks like. Um, and then we, we, we took that, that same methodology and we bias-adjusted the, 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 um, the weather time series we were using. We bias-adjusted that to the year 2052 based upon the CMIT-5 results um and then we ran the the uh, the uh, Monte Carlo simulation again another 100 million runs uh and and we built up this layer of probability for uh for fire exposure whether the whether that 10 meter pixel uh across the US whether that that would burn uh what the flame length is likely to be in that pixel and whether embers are likely to be be present as the the, the fire behavior model that we're using an open source fire behavior model called um uh has in it an ember spread component and so we also collect that information too because even if you're um you may not have direct exposure to flames uh, on your property those embers may may be able to reach your property we want to make sure we covered all those aspects okay it's time to commit 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself begin your new smile journey with bite and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks
0: And we are back on the Weather Geeks Pile, Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Ed Cairns from the First Street Foundation, and as you just heard in the first segment, they have a way now of assessing risk to wildfires for, and we know that infrastructure challenges are a big part of the discussion now as our nation is exposed to climate change. Um, tell us a little bit about sort of I, I, you heard talked a little bit about the risk side and you mentioned things like cement five which is a modeling sort of, you can talk a little bit more about that but tell us about the climate side of the study what's the scale is it decades years multiple decades uh and you know tell us about
1: the climate side of the the risk equation Yeah. so for, for all of our risk products at first street we also wanted to keep a, a horizon time horizon on our products It could be meaningful to the individual most individuals we found and we've we've run surveys on this. uh, Most individuals aren't thinking in 50 or 100 year increments. (laughs) Um, The the length of a typical mortgage 30 year mortgage is about the extent that most people will be be thinking out from. And so we've used 30 years as 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 that target now for 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 wildfire and for for fuels and for forestry that's that's a pretty short timeline right most most of the papers that you see written in like the national climate assessment or other papers that have been written regarding climate change and vegetation change uh, and wildfire change is looking at 100 years plus um so we we have we have a shorter time horizon but the the impact on on the fuels due to the warmer climate and drier climate uh, particularly the heat, the air temperature, the higher air temperature has a, has a devastating effect on fuels, makes them much more flammable and makes fire much more likely. And so that's why we're seeing uh, wildfire um, uh, impacts uh, rising at such an alarming rate. As, as is described at NCI, as, as everybody has seen in the news, these, these are things that are happening more and more frequently. And, and it's, a, it's really the impact of, the, of how, the, how the fuels are drying out in response to the higher temperatures.
0: You know, this is a really tricky discussion earlier on, I I was on a National Academy's attribution study back in 2016. And we couldn't say as much as we wanted to at that time about the attribution of climate change to fire activity i mean, there were so many other variables but i think in that six year period up to the present i think we know a bit more there have been more studies in in the literature i think work that you all are doing uh so there is clearly in in my mind at least a connection it seems that the peer-reviewed literature supports this connection between climate change and fires but what would you say to someone out there that says, well, how, you know, there's so many other variables. I mean, you've heard some of the discussions out there. Some of them were in the sort of political discussion about mm-hmm. managed wildfires and things that are not related to anthrop- anthropogenic climate change. So, so, how do you sort of sort of answer that question to that point when someone sort of brings those things to the discussion and says, well, well it's not all climate change or yeah, there are other things, which yes, that's a true statement, but uh, we know climate change is a big driver. So just how do you deal with that type of a uh, comment?
1: Yeah, and, and as you said, forest management. There's other things in play here. There's also the, the built environment. People are building into the wildland urban interface faster than ever before, to putting themselves in a, you know at risk. But they don't have a way of knowing until now. They haven't had a way of measuring what that risk uh, uh, might be. But the ma- main uh, main reply to folks is that question whether this is actually climate change is looking at the rate of that change. Uh, there's nothing else that can explain uh, the, the the rapid increase in wildfires and wildfire losses. Uh, to, to the extent that we've seen over the last couple of decades, it, it's very, very stark. Uh, everything else would would be, uh, you know, a less rapid increase, more linear increase. What we're seeing is it, it's unfortunately much closer to an exponential, which um, which is very frightful. Yeah, <laughs> when it comes to fire losses in this country.
0: Yeah. yeah. Now I can think of the obvious places where that risk is likely the greatest, perhaps out west in the drier parts over the Conus, at least. But were there any
1: result, particular results that surprised you? Well, I, I grew up in Florida, so I know there's a lot of wildfire in Florida, but the results are surprising a lot of other people that, that are like, well, you know, Florida's a rainy place. Why is it burning so much? Well, it has historically burned quite a bit. There's a very long dry season. And then with increasing air temperatures, it, it, it continues to burn. So Florida is one of those areas. Um, the, the southeast is a place where, in terms of the percentage change due to climate change, uh, the, the percent change in increased uh, wildfire risk due to climate change is is growing faster than any place else. And uh, so I live in Asheville, North Carolina. So I have I have seen this in, in person. Uh, a lot of people remember the Gatlinburg fire, uh, which, you know, is kind of similar in, in, in extremity, sort of like with the, uh, um, the Superior Colorado fire, you know, around the holidays this year, uh, where things, you know, just kind of lined up. But there's There's uh, a lot of fires going on, and like in Tennessee, West Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina region. Uh, Just two weeks ago, they you know were um, uh, entire towns in Maggie Valley were being um, evacuated due to wildfires in the area. So we're seeing we're seeing an uptick in the in the amount of fires in the southeast, and that's we're going to continue to see that. There's a lot of fuels there, a lot of forest. Uh, and they're going to continue to dry out, and, and but people have become a little bit used to like, oh yeah, you know, our fire suppression methods—they're they're adequate. We're keeping up on this; these fires aren't getting really big. Uh, but those fire suppression uh, resources are going to be stretched thinner and thinner and thinner. It's very labor-intensive to go out there and fight these fires, uh, and we have to be prepared as a community uh, and as a society to reach that. And out west, as you as you mentioned, and it's you know been well studied, those fire suppression resources are already stretched to the limit. And when they have multiple fires that start at the same time, they're immediately overtaxed and, and the results are, are, are devastating. Um, and so, um, you know, how we're going to balance the resources, which a lot of them are states, some are federal, across the U.S. to meet this uh, emerging risk. Uh, the first thing you got to do is you got to map it out. And so that w- that's what we've done. We've tried to map it out at, at a very high resolution um, and and making it publicly available. That's that's the other thing, you know, going back to climate services, one of the things that's been a little alarming. I mean, it's been very good over the last couple of years, particularly the last five years, been a lot of private uh, companies, a lot of for-profit companies that have been doing climate service have sprung up and, and doing this translational um, activity for things like wildfire and flood and others. Uh, but they've also been starting to be acquired at a very, very rapid pace by larger companies, right? And so these larger companies see value in this kind of information. And they're acquiring these small startups that are doing climate services, and they're bringing them inside. And what that does is it, yeah, I mean, we get it. That's a huge advantage for those companies to have that kind of expertise, to have that kind of knowledge informing their business decisions, Um, but it it doesn't make the data available to everybody, right? And so at First Street, we really are firm believers in data democratization. Uh, We don't wanna have this asymmetry of information putting some uh, vulnerable communities at greater risk because they don't know what their, their fire or their flood risk is. So that's why we feel very strongly about putting the same information out. So everybody has the same information that they're starting with. Uh, and then we think that we can, as a as a nation, we can start to arrive at what actions we need to take um, to address those risks. I'm Dr.
0: Marshall Shepard, I'm talking with Dr. Ed Cairns about uh, their new wildfire uh, risk assessment study. Uh, any good science study and any good scientist understands the sort of weaknesses of their study. What are the weaknesses of your study?
1: And, and, we, and, and we have published uh, our methods. Um, uh, so it's in peer review right now. And we always, uh, we use open science transparency. We put all these methods out there, including all of our weaknesses. So right now, we've had to make a couple of, of assumptions one is that the vegetation is not changing in composition. So the force is not changing over that 30-year period. We've done some preliminary studies. It's really hard. <laughs> um, so you know, we're going we to continue looking at that. Um, and then some of the um, some of the longer extended drought periods and such, the impact on that on fuels, too, is something that we're not totally resolving in this case. Um, but for version one of the of this. Uh, Higher uh, risk uh, product. We think we, we've 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 gathered the majority of the um, of the risk, but it's probably a little, still a little conservative estimate. We're going to continue to work on this throughout this year on version two. That'll in- include other aspects as we get feedback from our users and, f- and find out what they find to be most useful. That we can know how to focus our, our our future work as well.
0: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery. we're back on the Weather Beats podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm talking with Dr. Ed Kurens from the First Street Foundation. And, you know, I'm fascinated by your organization, First Street Foundation, because I think you represent sort of the new trajectory and where the weather climate enterprise is moving uh, as, as a professor and the director of a, a program in a major university. um, I'm always trying to understand organizations like yours better uh, for my students in, in, in terms of guidance. Uh, so with this study, I mean, who, who is employed by First Street Foundation? Is it a group of scientists? I mean, I know what your background is, but who's conducting this study and who do you hire
1: and what skills are you looking for? Well, we're about a half scientists and, and data scientists such as myself. Uh, and then the other half of us are marketing and communication specialists. Uh, because that's really first, rese- you know, spe- special sauce here is the ability to understand how to convey this information in a very effective way, and a- and as a scientist, uh, you know I'm you know I've I've participated in you know lots of big studies, complicated studies, lots of peer-reviewed work. Uh, it only moves the needle so much, right? So taking a, a, a sort of a modern marketing approach to this too, and you know doing focus groups and and study groups and finding out. You know what What are they going to be most responsive to what can they understand the, the easiest what kind of scoring even even the font and the colors that we use on the website have all gone through this kind of testing uh to make sure that it, the information can be can be conveyed in an effective manner as possible so as a, as a scientist as a, as a physical scientist i find this incredibly interesting as you know, trying to, you know, communicate my, as you have, Marshall, right? We, we try to communicate our science to everybody that we can. It's hard. As we know, it's really hard. Um, but, yeah, uh, yeah, First Street, is, we're, we're on to something here, I think, uh, about trying to make this information more consumable and and easier to use.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I think one of the things that I've been pushing here on my end at the university and just in the university ivory tower world is we fundamentally don't train scientists to be what I call end-to-end scientists. We train them the right dissertations and master's theses and present at conferences. But this world of communicating to the media, to policymakers, stakeholders, local communities involves skill sets that we don't get in our graduate training. And so uh, I really <laughs> appreciate this hybrid model. That's why I'm so fascinated by what organizations like, uh, like yours are doing. I want to kind of circle this and draw it to a close. It's been a really fascinating discussion with Dr. Ed Cairns. Now that you've done a study like this and you've done the flood study before that, I mean, what do you envision is sort of the, the takeaways? Who's using this? How do you recommend it to be? to be used now that those reports and studies are out there. I mean, are these designed for like city councils or county commissioners for federal policymakers? Uh, Who do you envision as your users and how do you envision them using
1: it? Yeah, so the individual we envision them using the website more or our partners like in realtor.com that, you know, get this information out there at the at the property level Uh, for the for the government's I really envision like these reports that we're putting together to arm them with the information we we do community scoring and stuff like that, too, as part of our process to arm them with the information that they need to take those first steps towards climate assessments to figure out what, what they need for their local community for federal government. Uh, we really hope that this kind of information find its way into the decision making process, particularly with, with big uh, funding sources like mitigation uh, funding or infrastructure funding. There's a lot of the discussions going on at federal level right now. How do you direct those funds to address where the climate risk is the greatest and those most vulnerable communities? Uh, you know, we would love to see our information being used for that kind of decision making so that it's informed decision making. And it's not just going to those communities that are, are the best at filling out the complicated federal applications for for funding, but those places that really need it the most and can put it to the best use.
0: Really, really fascinating. The, just one quick question that comes to mind. Do you anticipate either for this or the flood study? sort of a, repeating this on a cycle in the same way that we see the NCA and IPCC reports? Do these require sort of periodic reassessments?
1: Yeah, we, we've been uh, doing updates of the, uh, of the flood product already to, to you know, increase accuracy and such and bring in new features. With the fire, it's really fundamental that we have to update it at least annually, maybe uh, you know, more quickly than that, because as the fires are burning through the landscape, they're actually changing that probability of that fire happening again next year. And so we have to continuously update our fuel layers and rerun the model. So we've set up our we've set up our computing infrastructure to be able to do that on a regular basis.
0: Where can people find out more about First Street Foundation or you on social media or the web?
1: Yeah, we have our, our website, firststreet.org. Uh, we, we do have a, a Twitter and a, a, a LinkedIn feed. Uh, but uh, going to riskfactor.com or firststreet.org, you can find out more about our products and more about our more about our firm. Got to end it
0: there. It's really fascinating. But before we do, it's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Craig Kochel, or maybe it's Craig Kochel. Craig, I apologize if I didn't get your name correctly. Uh, Craig is a retired professor in the geology department at Bucknell University. Alongside his students, he helped publish research on Tropical Storm Lee in 2011. This tropical storm brought flooding rain from the Gulf Coast to the Mid-Atlantic region. Flooding is one of Craig's passions. And so uh, it's quite appropriate that we were talking the First Street Foundation today because their flood assessment and risk has been uh, quite impactful as well. Now, if you know someone that would deserve to be a Geek of the Week candidate, check out our social media pages. Uh, Thank you so much, Ed, for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: And that's all we have for this week. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepherd from the University of Georgia and we'll talk to you next time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on Auto Trader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.